probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to The Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me this week again... Todd Cameron from Outpost31.com, the ultimate the thing fan site. Thank you so much for, for rounding out this week with us, Todd. And thanks for having me on the show, Harper. Yeah, it's been awesome. So Minute 15, our last minute of the week, begins with shots of the helicopter leaving the camp uh, with uh, McCready and Copper heading to the Norwegian base, uh, and it ends a minute later uh, with an ominous move, camera move through the, uh, through the medical room just after we've seen Jed continuing under the uh, ping pong table here. So, yeah, obviously, as we were watching it, we were, uh, you, you mentioned just kind of the, what a great shot of a camp this is. Um, we get two kind of long shots of the helicopter leaving, and, um, yeah, it definitely establishes the kind of the geography of the camp and, and just kind of establishes what, you know, it's getting a little darker and um, adds a lot of atmosphere. I love those two shots. For sure. Like I said in an earlier minute, they only filmed the uh, the camp from the south. Um, I'm sorry, facing the south and to the southwest. And this shot here at the beginning of this minute is uh, we're looking exactly due south. Yeah. So, it's, you know, you get that great, uh, great shot of the, the camp and the, uh, the mountains in the background and everything. It's yeah. It's uh, the, again, the locations play such a huge role in this movie. And I'm, I'm so glad they ended up doing it that way. Right. And the camp looks absolutely gorgeous. And I think they even... You know, it's just, it's a movie where, like you said earlier, something, something about things go wrong, but it works out the right way. Mm-hmm. Well, they turned the heat on in the camp here, and you can see the snow and the ice is kind of sliding off the roof. And, uh, you know, carpenters started freaking out because they didn't want to melt all the snow off the roof because it would, certainly wouldn't look as good. But it, it ended up looking amazing because it refroze with these huge, massive icicles kind of dripping down the side of the camp. And, you know, something went wrong, but it looks even better. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a perfect example of one of those things, too. Yeah, where it just kind of, you know, might have been a mistake, thought about as a mistake in the first first place, but then works out so much better. Yeah. And obviously, just the way they chose this camp and they, they built it, um, they built it in the summer, correct? And then and then came back much later in the winter when it was all covered. And, you know, it was that, that was exactly the plan. And it worked out the way they wanted that they wanted it to look like it had been there a long time. That's right. They built it in, in late June and July of 81, I believe. And they came back in the first week of December. So they were gone from that place for, you know, five, five and a half months. Yeah. And, and obviously, the uh, I'm sure they were very pleased when they arrived back on the camp and, and saw how, you know, it looks extremely realistic. It look you know, because it is real. It's exactly what would have what would happen to a building out there in, in the snow. So they were thrilled. And, you know, as audience members appreciating a set piece that's just gorgeous. Uh, I mean, they couldn't ask for a better location and, of course, a better snowfall on it. I mean, it got buried. Yeah, yeah, it really, you can tell it really did. And, um, you know, and I think that's one thing that the the kind of realism on those kind of details of just, you know, the location and the, the actual base and the production design of all that, I think having that stuff 
you know, be very, very real and not, you know, not at all distracting from the, from the experience really sucks you in, in a way that benefits the later scenes when, you know, that are very dependent on special effects and the creatures and everything, because you're so absorbed in it. There's, there's nothing that's kind of hinted at, you know, given you the idea that it's not a real place because it is a real place. You know, it's not something that was, you know, created in a studio. So. Yeah. It's it's a full size set. Um, They built the entire thing. The outlying buildings were pretty shack. Um, you know, they even they, they mounted the full size radio towers with concrete bases, like we said earlier. They didn't skimp on anything with the set, that's for sure. And you know, the temperature, of course, and all the snow we're looking at is real. Um, they did use fake snow in the movie for some scenes, but not a heck of a lot. Basically, just fake a little bit of the blizzard conditions. Scenes where we're seeing the men, you know, back up to the, the tool shed to talk to Blair, and then back up to the shack again. They kind of fake, obviously, an Antarctic blizzard. But again, most all that snow is real that you're looking at. Yeah, and it, it really does, um, you know, benefit the movie to, for not just for for the look of the movie too, but also you know for the actors to be able to really experience that, and you know that affects their performance. And I know obviously, um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the guys have talked about how uh, the shots in the set were also you know they were chilled. They brought it down to like forty degrees on the set, but having it you know especially for these exteriors and things for the actors to be able to react to actually how cold it is outside and everything I'm sure makes it much easier for them to kind of get into character and, and, you know, imagine the situation that they're in. One thing we're going to try and do on a future project is discern exactly what we're looking at on the interior shots. Like what part of the interior was up in Stewart and what part is on set in LA? Cause they built duplicate rec rooms. Um, when they went up to Stewart, when the cast arrived there and they walked in and they saw it, that it matched exactly what they were working on, you know, in LA six months earlier. So some of that interior up there was replica interior as well. Pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, that'd be fascinating to kind of be able to break down the movie and exactly know, you know, what was on the set, what was on the on the location and everything. And, and you know, that's a testament too to the production designers and everybody who worked on the sets too. It's just that, you know, it's very hard to tell. <laughs> they did a really good job of duplicating it because, yeah, in most cases, it's really difficult to tell which is which. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for the effect sequences, the entire Bennings effect sequence was all done on location in Stewart. None of that was in L.A. So, you know, Rob, Rob Boutin and, and the crew, the effects crew, basically sent up what the guys would need on, on location to, to shoot those two sequences, you know, with Bennings being attacked in, in the storeroom and then uh, him out on the snow there kneeling. Yeah, I think I read on, uh, it might have been on um, Stuart Cohen's blog that, you know, they, the irony was not lost on anyone that, you know, they they went all the way up to British Columbia to shoot that. And, you know, the first thing they shoot is not outside. It's in this little store, store cramped storage <laughs> room, and not, not taking advantage of all the, the beautiful snow and everything outside. So, yeah, the bulk of this minute is actually taken up on, on the inside of the camp, which is, I think, uh, the ki- the kitchen is probably from the set, if I had to guess, but, you know, who, who knows. But we get uh, this great moment with uh, Niles is listening to Superstitious on the radio and irritating Bennings who uh, got shot today. So he's not, <laughs> not, not pleased, uh, but it's a, it's a great, you know, another great character moment where it builds up, uh, you know, Bennings is a little bit of a hard ass and, you know, mm. but, but it is kind of, you know, he's kind of funny in the way he kind of puts it to him with the, you know, how he says it. And then, um, but Nalls, obviously this is another, another spot we get a, a kind of a funny line that I never really noticed until I watched it with uh, subtitles that, he, um, and, and, and it is in the script as well. When he answers Bennings, he says, uh, we Buana, which, uh, yeah, which is first of all, kind of funny that, you know, for whatever reason he uses, we just another, you know, bit of 
you know, character for Nalls, but it's it's very funny and weird to me that Buana was such a uh, you know it gets gets used twice in the movie and three at least three times in the script that I've seen. Um, it's just they use it to characterize uh, Nalls and Childs a lot, which is kind of funny. Right, it's actually an African term. It kind of means master, so which kind of showing that T.K. Carter is kind of kowtowing to to Peter Maloney a little bit. Um, and they're using it sarcastically, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. It would have been. It would have been used. Uh, yeah, because it's in the cutscene with with Keith David as well, mm-hmm. with the Norwegian, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's there, and then um, in, in that uh, in the scene that's actually in the movie when they're talking about eight weeks is not enough to drive somebody crazy, and Nalls says, uh, "Bullshit, Buana." <laughs> so yeah, it's it's like it's one of Nalls' kind of you know quirks, I guess. That's just one of his little sayings. But yeah, I thought it was funny. That's a word I never noticed that in the movie. It just never really. Uh, popped out at me and that now it's you know it's in the movie a bunch <laughs> mm-hmm. what's interesting is that yeah peter maloney benning's character comes off as a little grumpy a little gruff and surprisingly in real life um that is not the case at all i was expecting peter maloney to be his character kind of you know like mm-hmm. oh, maybe a little standoffish and you know like whatever and it's total opposite he was just awesome to speak with and um he, he had too many stories to tell <laughs> <laughs> About about the filming, and uh, I mean, we could have talked to him for hours, and uh, hopefully, we'll speak with him again in the future with some stuff. Um, but he, he's got some he, so many anecdotes about his experience up there filming the movie. That's so great. Yeah, I mean, it seems like just based on kind of the you know video interviews and things that I've seen that uh, almost all the guys that were involved are very are still very enthusiastic and um, you know uh, love talking about it because it was such a you know a lot of these guys were real young guys. They were sounds like a lot of them were actors coming out of Juilliard that, um, you know, some of them knew each other beforehand. And for a lot of them, this was either their first movie or, you know, very early on in their movie careers. So it was, it was, a you know, it was such an adventure for these guys to be able to shoot such a crazy movie like this and, and to be involved with something this cool. So yeah, it's, it's great to hear that they're also, uh, you know, so many of them are, are so enthusiastic about it and willing to talk about it now. Well, for a couple of the guys, it's, it was a new experience for them. Like Richard Master and Peter Maloney had no idea there was a fan base for the movie at all until just this past spring. Mm. Um, now, Thomas Waits, you know, we've been in contact with him. He'd come to one of the ThinkFest events in Toronto in 2008, which is the first time I met him. Um, so he knew, you know, he's more active in social media. He knew what was going on with the thing in Opus 31. And, but, I mean, Peter Maloney, Richard Masser, and, of course, Wilford Brimley had no idea um, that this, this, there was this fan following for a 35-year-old movie um, at all. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be a, a pretty interesting thing to see that, you know, this thing that you did 35 years ago and, and you know, you know, it was, a, it was a great experience and all, but, you know, you've moved on with your life and everything. And then, you know, to suddenly find out that it's got this huge following and that, you know, people love your character and things like that. It's got to be such a great, great, uh, great thing to find out. Yeah, the guys were all pretty awesome. Everyone was really, really cool. And of course, like I said, Wilford is, is a riot to listen to. <laughs> and everyone was pretty cool. We got to meet Dean Cundy as well um unfortunately joel polis uh had some work come up that he couldn't couldn't leave but the guys were awesome yeah that's so cool to hear i haven't i haven't had a chance to meet any of these guys but hopefully uh hopefully at some point in the future i'll, I'll run into them at a, at a convention i think it's interesting to note that uh for for this minute too that in a lot of the home video releases and um and i think maybe even on the tv release too they do not use superstitious as the song because they they couldn't get the rights to it so instead they used uh, One Chain Don't Make No Prison by The Four Tops, which um, I, I listened to the other day and uh, does not give the same uh, vibe as Superstitious. 
That's funny you say that because boy, does that ever tell us, you know, our first experience really burns in our memory um, because one chain don't make a prison for me is the song. Oh, that's and funny. I first saw it on home video, the uh, original home video MCA release, which has the redubbed music. And that for me is the song. That's how I grew up. You know, first, <laughs> I, I only heard that song in the movie, you know, from when I saw it in 84, summer 84, until I bought the VHS widescreen release which had superstitious on it, you know, and that was like, what, 15 or 16 years later. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and then I watched the VHS widescreen, of course, you know, back when we had our VCRs and our four by three TVs and, you know, widescreen was awesome. And then I watched that for years and got accustomed to that. But always when I go back and hear the four tops, that for me is the thing. That's so funny. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I've never even seen it with that in place. I haven't, I've haven't seen this scene with that music in place. So yeah, for me, it's very superstitious is so ingrained in it, but yeah, it's, that is funny is how those things get kind of stuck in your memory like that. Yeah. And, it, and we have to realize that the actual real song is superstitious. That's the original theatrical song. Yeah. And it's, it is a, it's a great, I mean, it's a perfect fit for the movie in terms of obviously the, uh, the name of the song plays, a plays a good, <laughs> uh, plays into a lot of the themes of the movie and the, the paranoia and all that too. So, uh, it work, works really well, but it, you know, it's a great, um, character moment for Knowles too. I, I like that in the script, it says that, uh, when Benning yells at him to turn it down, that he goes over it and it's, I think in the script it says he turns it down, but only a little, but, uh, so I wonder if that was, uh, TK Carter's idea to go over to it, just not even do anything at all. <laughs> it shows him being like the younger kind of smart ass of, of the group. Yeah. It's, it, he's a very different character than most of the rest of these guys. I, I love how they established that here. It's just, it's such a funny moment. And, you know, it's something that nobody else is even seeing. So, you know, he's doing it just for himself. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it's just such a great moment. And too, we were we were talking about how, um, how it's kind of a funny moment too, the way he just, at the end of this shot, how he just sort of, he's, you know, he's skating backwards away from the fridge and he just disappears out of frame. It's, the camera doesn't even follow him. It's, it's a nice kind of subtle, yeah. almost comedic moment too. It's really nice. And yeah, we get some more uh, some more Jed here under the table, still looking uh, very ominous. As the this is where we're, uh, we had the the main theme, the desolation theme was started playing earlier uh, last minute when we came on him, and then it, it fades out over him as well. So, you know, that theme is definitely tied tied into the dog, especially in the beginning of the movie here. Yeah, and then the, we end this minute with um, a shot in the the medical room with the camera just kind of moving slowly behind some of the gear. And I, I always thought that shot really str- is strikes me as kind of a um, a slasher movie shot. It feels very Halloween, like you're almost getting the perspective of the killer, uh, which is kind of kind of cool to see that that uh, through line for John Carpenter. Yeah, I love the the, the slow panning shot through we come up through the I believe the lab and then the, and then the the, the medical room. Um, I you know and it's interesting because maybe that is supposed to be the view of the dog because the dog would be leaving the rec, rec room and heading in that direction. Um, and then we see him come out into the hallway that's the men's quarters, kind of noses his way through the door there. And that was one of the things that we had to work on with putting the final map together, which direction we would sit hallway. So meaning which direction would Jed come through the door um, mm. and walk down to, of course, the, 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 the infamous shadow room at the other end of the hall. Yeah. So, yeah, I imagine that um, those, those shots of Jed that are coming up in the in the next minute definitely played a big role in, in putting that map together, too. That's one of the one of the other times when you really get a, a, a little bit of a wider view of moving through the camp. 
but yeah, those those shots definitely give you that kind of slasher vibe. And we know that there there were some uh, some other scenes shot with uh, you know Bennings had a very different death originally, uh, two two different deaths originally, as did Fuchs that have that both of them have a very kind of slasher movie feel. So that whole kind of you know maybe seeing things from the killer's perspective or from the monster's perspective is uh, you know something that Carpenter obviously has a lot of experience with. So yeah, it adds that it's it's got that feeling. It also kind of evokes a little bit of that kind of shots from Alien or uh, or The Shining, just moving, you know, this kind of slow moving, just in, you know, the shots of just the environment. There's no characters, so all it, it's just there to kind of establish an atmosphere, which is really cool. It definitely adds to the mood of the movie a lot. Yeah, and the camp works. I don't know if it's in our minute. I believe it is. There's that. Yeah, it's there's that one still shot of the rec room. Mm-hmm. And it's just gorgeous. I mean, that whole set is perfect. And they really, there's so many little things that they did to, you know, color how it affects your mood and how it affects the scene. And they did little subtle things like painting the the, uh, the arcade game, uh, Asteroids Deluxe game, just changing the color of it so it's not as vibrant. kind of fits in with the dull, gray, bleak setting of the camp. Oh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. I knew, that I knew what the games were. I didn't know that they painted them to, to make a match. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously there was, you know, there were no details left you know, un, unturned with, with this, that Carpenter and, and the team did such a great job with kind of, there's nothing that stands out as, as you know, that doesn't belong. And yeah, it, it, everything in the camp just feels, you know, hyper real, um, which, mm-hmm. you know, as we talked about, definitely let, lets you really get into the movie rather than, you know, being distracted by anything that kind of stands out with, you know, uh, a lesser director might might not have uh, not have thought about. The rec room is definitely a, a pivotal main you know, focal point of, of the camp. That's where a lot of the action takes place. There's so many scenes that, that take place uh, in the rec room. Uh, it's definitely the center point. And I mean, they really utilize that set, um, you know, both in Stewart and um, okay, um, down in LA as, I mean, so much was filmed in it and so much takes place there. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's a really smart choice too, because it does, I mean, obviously the rec room is one of the bigger locations too. So it's probably easier to, you know, fit all these characters in and, and have these kind of big moments with, with the whole cast. But um, also, you know, it, it, it thematically it's kind of interesting because the first time we see it is the first time we see the interior of the camp at all. We see the rec room and we see everybody just kind of having fun, you know, that's uh, right. playing ping pong yeah. and everything. And then obviously, uh, especially, if, you know, if you've seen the movie before that, that, shot is very kind of not ominous but foreboding almost because you know what all the kind of terrifying things that are going to happen in that room the way that that kind of space is transformed in in, from like a space of uh you know place where they're having fun but also where they're all kind of enjoying each other's company and they you know they're friendly with each other and then obviously where the movie goes is tears them apart and and with paranoia and, and kind of turns that idea completely on its head it tears the record apart literally as a bulldozer comes through the wall yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I never actually thought about that, but having the rec room as, as a central point of, you know, many of the key scenes is, is thematically very interesting. I think the creepiest part of that entire set, though, is having, a, you know, a fictional basement complex at an Antarctic camp. That set was, you know, matched the, the above ground set. I mean, it was just the creepiest. I mean, how do you, you're ending this movie going down in the basement? You know, it's getting it's getting even worse, you know, or better, so to speak. Uh, yeah. That base, that basement set and the cinematography was just the creepiest. Couldn't get any creepier. It is, yeah. That that whole sequence is incredibly tense. It's just the way the set's built, the way it's lit, the way it's edited, very kind of carefully to kind of you know give you a lot of those kind of extra suspenseful moments and 
the sound, the way everything kind of echoes down there, everything about that whole sequence is, and, uh, and, you know, just, you know, like I said, it's, we're already in a very terrifying situation where they're completely isolated and this base has become a, a real kind of hostile environment. So, you know, where can it get any worse? Well, of course we know in horror movies, the basement is, is where, where you go next, where, where the next, uh, that's where the ultimate horror always resides. So yeah, that's a, that's a great kind of, uh, way to use the geography of the camp to, to build the movie up. So uh, the only other real note I had specifically about this minute is that in the script, this, uh, this scene with, uh, with the music playing and Benning's getting irritated and all that actually happens a little bit later. It's after the whole sequence at the Norwegian camp. So it's, I guess it is kind of interesting the way that it does move the timeline along and that this really jumps things forward tonight and, you know, everybody's kind of going to bed and everything. Uh, and then we see the Norwegian camp. So I'm, I'm wondering if there was a specific reason for kind of moving that around or maybe they tested it. And it just, um, you know, this this kind of scene added a little bit of a levity with, with the whole Nalls interaction with Bennings or or what. But, yeah, it is kind of interesting to note that it, this is not where it is originally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like there's one shot in there where it looks like night is coming on almost after they've departed for the Norwegian camp. And we did a pretty good timeline. Again, Steve Crawford, again, did the maps and the timeline. He made an amazing timeline. And, and for the new website, I put a little bit more work into it and brushed it up a little more detail. And as you can see, this day, which is still day one um, of a six-day movie, it would be only like a late morning that they were leaving for the Norwegian camp. So it's a little tricky there. I think, you know, the weather was supposed to be closing in. Carpenter wanted to make it feel like it was risky, of course, taking that flight to, to, to go and check out the other camp. But yeah, it's kind of it kind of tricks you a little bit that maybe it's kind of a night sequence coming on, but it's it's not the case. Yeah, yeah, it is. A, it's definitely provides something interesting for the timeline and the, the way it's edited together, the way they changed it. So I think that kind of covers everything I had for for this minute specifically. Did uh, anything else you had about the about the minute? Uh, no, it sounds pretty good to me. Cool. So um, I know uh, we, we talked about it a little earlier, um, you know, your, your trip up to up to visit where they shot the film. You want to tell uh, listeners kind of about what you've got planned for that uh, in the next couple of years? Yeah, the next few years, actually. What we're planning to do, I've always wanted to go back. When I went to Stewart and saw the site with Steve and we had that weekend up there, um, we both made a pact that we were coming back 100 percent. And of course, Steve passed away in 2008 and the years kept going by. You know, we hit the 2012 it was the 30th. Um, now the 35th has come, you know, life gets busy, years is by. So kind of made a firm pact here that I am going to go back and we're going to make that for the 40th. And of course, now with social media, you know, the last 10 years, how social media has grown and uh, getting outpost 31 on social media, the fan base has been more organized, more grouped and, uh, and together. And so for the launch of the website, we announced that we're going to do a group trip and literally, as I'm recording this with you, I've got stuff popping up where people want to go. I'm a little overwhelmed by the response <laughs> of, of fans that are interested in this trip. Uh, I think it's going to be awesome. I think we're coming up on almost 20 people now that are interested in going. Wow. Um, wow. Of course, it's a ways off. You know, five years is also a bit of time, but that can also, you know, cause it to grow as well. So, you know, the more the merrier. I think it will be an uh, awesome adventure to go back up there. And uh, we're planning to go in the summer of 2002 uh, across the actual anniversary weekend of the 40th. I believe the June 25th is a Saturday uh, that year. So it'll be an awesome weekend. Uh, we've got some information on the website. We're planning to do some really cool stuff. friend and fan named Dougie Rankin has uh, made an unbelievably gorgeous steel plaque 
uh, laser cut custom made steel plaque that we're going to be putting up at the site, um, marking the location as Outpost 31 and the filming location of the thing. And it's also going to serve as a memorial for uh, Steve, Steve Crawford. And um, we're going to do some awesome stuff like camp out at the site, weather permitting. Hopefully we get some great weather that weekend. We actually had somebody at the site just this past Sunday, unbelievably, on <laughs> anniversary. Um, good friend of mine um, up, who runs a tour business up there, ironically, couldn't believe it. It was at the site on, on the anniversary. And it was fairly overcast, thick overcast, rain, I know, about 20 degrees, so a little bit chilly by my standards. Uh, so hopefully we get some great, great weather and camp out at the site. And one thing we'd like to do is uh, get online up there and give fans a live tour of the site so we can show you where all the buildings lay, uh, like the main compound, um, the tool shed, Blair, uh, McCree's shack, and also possibly and hopefully sync up some sort of live viewing so we can all watch the movie together, you know, with the group of us who've made it to Stewart with the fans all around the world. That sounds like such such an incredible experience that, that you know, so for, for, you know, fans of the movie, people who have who've been listening to this podcast and, and just gener- in general, definitely, you know, look into that. That sounds like such a cool opportunity. And, you know, even if, uh, if I don't get a chance to go, I will definitely be tuning in to, to see you guys see, uh, see how it all works out. It sounds like such a, such a cool opportunity to, um, to get involved with the film and the, and the fan base in, in a really unique, uh, kind of way. Awesome. And we're working on some pretty big projects as well uh, to also release in 2022. So it's almost full time the thing right now, maybe overtime doing this podcast. So um, <laughs> it's pretty much crazy what's happening. Yeah, that's so awesome. So, um, yeah, again, thank you so much, uh, Todd, for coming on this week. It's uh, obviously a, an, an honor to have somebody who knows you know so much about the movie and who's been so critical and involved with the uh with the fan community so we really appreciate you coming on oh thank you for having me it's been really uh, fun to, to talk about the film with you yeah most definitely so you know again for listeners uh if you haven't already please check out outpost31.com and and join the uh the facebook group it's a really fun place to kind of discuss you know your theories and and talk about uh just talk about the movie in general and there's there's a great post recently about everybody's you know most wanted uh props from the movie so that and that was really fun to kind of read through what people would really love to have so you know definitely join up and, and get involved uh it's a it's a great great place to be for fans of the movie so thanks again todd and and i think uh we'll be wrapping up this week on a on a great note so make sure to join us next week for another edition of the thing minute Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thethingminute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper, signing out.